Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 19, Jessica Roth, Informant Witnesses and the Risk of Wrongful Convictions. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jessica Roth. Jessica is an associate professor at Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University and teaches evidence, criminal law, and a course on corporate and white-collar crime. Her scholarship focuses on issues in the criminal justice system, including a piece on entrapment. Jessica's recent article is entitled Informant Witnesses and the Risk of Wrongful Convictions and was published in the American Criminal Law Review. In the article, Jessica takes on the issue of informant witness testimony. She argues that informant testimony is unreliable and often creates serious risks for wrongful conviction, yet it hasn't attracted significant attention from scholars and reformers thus far. Jessica explores the dangers of informant testimony and then offers a menu of solutions for counteracting those dangers. Jessica, thanks for joining us on Excited Utterance. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You frame the discussion of informant witnesses by talking about the four categories of evidence associated with wrongful conviction, eyewitness misidentification, bad forensics, false informant testimony, and false confessions. Three of those have been much in the news and subject to intense scholarly research, but informant testimony has largely fallen by the wayside. Why is that? I'm not exactly sure. It's a really great question, and it's the reason I wrote the article. I thought it was important to shine a light on informant testimony and highlight the role that it has played in wrongful convictions, and also to start a conversation about what it would look like to generate a set of science-based best practices for the use of informants to match those that we are developing and have developed for the three other categories of evidence that are associated with wrongful convictions. Is one of the reasons that we don't really talk very much about false informant testimony because its unreliability is rather unsurprising? We think that unbiased eyewitnesses and forensic analysts and confessions are generally reliable. The information that they were unreliable is somewhat shocking and surprising. But informants seem to be something that is always a risk of having some kind of lying or some kind of other problem. I think that's true to a certain extent. Certainly courts and commentators have recognized and talked about the unreliability of informants for a very long time, for decades. But courts and commentators have noted the unreliability of eyewitness identifications for a pretty long time, too. So I think you've identified one of the reasons why we haven't focused on informants, but I don't think it explains it entirely. And I also think that maybe we think that cross-examination is sufficient to bring out those biases and to expose lies by informants when in fact it may be that cross-examination, demeanor, simply just are not the full engines of truth that we think that they are. So let me push you on that point. 
What's the essential problem with informant testimony then? Why is it that we need to protect against it in ways that go beyond cross-examination and traditional means of jury assessment? Part of what we need to do is make sure that the cross-examination can be as effective as it needs to be in order to accomplish the purposes that we entrust to it. And so part of what I focus on in the article are reforms to the debriefing of informant witnesses so that the material is preserved, that then needs to be turned over to a capable defense attorney to do a thorough cross-examination. I think part of what has happened historically is that that record is not preserved, and so the material for cross-examination is not there, or it's turned over too late if it has been preserved to be used effectively, and that sometimes the material doesn't reflect contamination that can occur even unwittingly in the debriefing process. So in other words, it may be that a properly done cross-examination could be effective, maybe not as effective as we think historically it is, but that the raw material, if you will, that would go into that examination hasn't been preserved and turned over. I find your perspective here quite interesting because there's been a thread among many of the episodes this past year in which scholars have been advocating less for admissibility rules where we try to exclude unreliable evidence, but instead focus on trying to provide more information for the adversarial process to work. Is this a conscious move on your part? to join this crowd or this growing number of people who have been advocating for this? Or is this just something that came out of this particular problem? I certainly didn't set out to join a particular crowd, but I do think what we're seeing is perhaps a convergence of scholarly views that what we need to do is focus on the inputs for evidence creation rather than on solely questions of exclusion and admissibility at trial. Because when we're talking about issues of exclusion at trial, we're at such a tertiary point. The better approach is to go to the beginning of the evidence stream and see what we can do to make sure that the evidence, when it's generated or collected, is as reliable as possible. And the processes that we use at the tertiary stage at trial can provide feedback and mechanisms that help make the evidence collection more reliable, if you will. It can reinforce those goals, but to focus solely on trial processes, I think, is to ignore that the most important part of the analysis really should be at the beginning, at the creation of the evidence. I want to push back to the issue of what the problem of informant testimony is. And I wanted to make sure that we talked a bit more about the psychological studies that you talk about in your paper. There were three results I thought that were quite stunning. First, we have the rather obvious conclusion that the presence of informant testimony is going to increase the conviction rate. But then we have somewhat counterintuitive results. For example, it doesn't really matter in terms of the jury's opinion, or at least in the psychological studies, it didn't seem to matter whether the informant had received incentives. And it didn't really matter whether or not an expert had pointed out problems with informant testimony. This seems awfully counterintuitive. And I was wondering if you had more to say about that or 
thoughts on why that might be? Those are very interesting and counterintuitive findings. And I do think that we need to do more studies that replicate what a real trial feels like, because I agree, one views those findings with some skepticism. And so it would be interesting to do those studies again in a setting where we had thorough cross-examination of the informant and also deliberation among jurors. All the studies have been done in settings that did not involve those elements. And so I'd like to see more studies to double-check those findings because I agree they're quite counterintuitive, but they are consistent with at least one psychological phenomenon, which is the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is a phenomenon where people think that somebody engages in a certain behavior or conduct because of the kind of person that they are, rather than the situation in which they find themselves. And so Neuschatz, Jeffrey Neuschatz, who's the psychologist who performed the studies you're talking about, hypothesized that that may be what's going on that explains why the mock jurors are not swayed by finding out about incentives because they are engaging in the fundamental attribution error. Namely, they think that somebody is testifying because they're essentially a truthful person and not because of the incentives they may have been provided in this particular circumstance. I suppose there's also another thing that may be at work, which is the essential narrative power of an informant's testimony. To the extent that the jury is trying to latch onto some story, that informant is able to give that story. And then it's very difficult to discount a narrative. You either like it or you don't. Just like you were saying in terms of fundamental attribution, you either like the witness and want to believe the witness or you don't. That's absolutely right. And the narrative benefits of the cooperator's testimony, I think, really shouldn't be underestimated. A juror, a jury may be able to, in isolation, find a particular informant not particularly credible. But in reality, by the time they encounter that informant in a trial, they will have been primed for the narrative of the crime, if you will, that the cooperator or the informant is going to give from the stand. And they'll have been primed through the prosecutor's opening statement, usually. And so when the cooperating witness takes the stand, that witness is going to be essentially repeating what the jury has already heard in opening, the essential narrative of the crime. And then that's going to be repeated in the prosecutor's closing statement. And so what we see also are repetition effects. There have been studies that show that when people hear a story or a fact repeatedly, that they tend to believe it as true. And we also see the operation of framing effects where what you hear first, you often believe to be true as opposed to what you hear subsequently. And so when the prosecutor gives the first opening statement and conveys a narrative that then is consistent with what the informant says, we have a confluence of all of these effects, reinforcing, if you will, the credibility or the salience of the informant's version of events in the jury's mind. And it's hard to undo all of those effects through cross-examination that brings out the informant's incentives. Let's talk solutions. We have very powerful evidence, and we have this risk that it could be false or misleading. The question then is how to cabinet. I'd like to frame this as three sets of solutions. So the first set of solutions are disclosure requirements. Tell us a little bit about those. So what I propose is that prosecutors disclose 
earlier than they have customarily, than they do in many parts of the country, information about informant witnesses. And so, in other words, that should be done before the informant witness takes the stand at trial. And it should include prior statements by the witness, the content of any agreements that have been reached with the witness, concessions in charges or sentencing, promises by the prosecutor's office with respect to sentencing or any other benefits, the criminal history of the informant, and the informant's history of offering cooperation and testimony in other cases. So with better disclosure, defense counsel will be in a better position to engage in that kind of effective cross-examination that we were just talking about. Why is it so important that this material be provided early? You seem to emphasize the timing of this information. Well, it's important that it be provided at a point when defense counsel can make effective use of it before trial, especially if we're talking about extensive information that may then require or prompt further investigation, such as information about prior cases in which the informant may have testified. In addition, uh, one of the other reforms that I call for is a pretrial reliability hearing with respect to the informant. If the information that's disclosed by the prosecutor suggests that there's something particularly unreliable about this informant, when I say particularly, I mean beyond just the usual case that the person is incentivized in some way, then the defense attorney has an opportunity first to raise it with the prosecutor, see if the prosecutor wants to take further investigation on their own, and perhaps that would lead to a resolution, but also raise it with the judge if necessary so that there can be a pretrial reliability hearing before the trial. This reliability hearing is what I think is your second area of reform. My question here is really similar to the questions that we ask in the Daubert context. Why are judges going to be better at detecting problems here than jurors? That's a great question. And I don't know that judges are necessarily more competent in making these determinations than juries. But I do think that the fact of having the hearing before the trial is important essentially as a check and balance on the prosecutor's own evaluation of the informant's reliability. And it's important that there be the prospect of the hearing so that prosecutors are focused on the issue of reliability earlier in the process. And I do think that judges may have some special competence in the sense that if they do these kinds of hearings over and over again, they will become familiar with the kinds of procedures that this particular prosecutor's office typically follows and whether what happened in this particular case deviates from those procedures. And it creates the opportunity for a common law, if you will, with respect to reliability of informants that I think could be quite useful. Thinking back to what you were saying about the priming mechanism and the framing that occurs during trial as well, having a pre-trial hearing on the reliability of just the witness might counteract some of those concerns as well. All right, let's move to your last grouping of reforms. So you suggest a number of evidentiary reforms, and unfortunately, we don't have time to go into all of them, but the one I wanted to focus on were the corroboration rules. Tell us more about those. So a number of states have corroboration rules that say that an informant's testimony cannot be presented to the jury unless it's corroborated by other evidence. An informant's testimony is not sufficient to convict. It has to be corroborated by other evidence. The problem with such rules in practice is that the evidence that is used to corroborate an informant's testimony 
often itself suffers from indicia of unreliability. So, for example, in a number of the DNA exoneration cases, we have an informant testimony corroborated by what turns out to be a false confession or by an eyewitness misidentification. And so what I'm calling for is really a focus on the reliability of the informant's testimony and not just on the fact of corroboration in and of itself, but really looking at the quality of the informant's testimony and also the quality of the corroboration. So you'd like to stick with a standard of reliability as opposed to, I guess, the corroboration rule is more of a rule-based approach to sufficiency. That's correct. And I think that it would be very rare that one would find an informant to be reliable without there being some independent corroboration. But I think that focusing solely on corroboration is the wrong approach, particularly because, as we saw in so many of the DNA exoneration cases, we appeared to have tainted informant testimony where details about the crime were provided to the informant in the course of the interrogation, like we see in the false confession cases. You could have what essentially is false corroboration. And so that's why the focus should be on the reliability of the informant and the procedures used in the course of developing that testimony. Normally, as a final question, I ask our guests what's next. But I think your article and its calls for research really does answer that question already. So here's a somewhat more skeptical final question for you. Are these reforms cutting the right balance? Obviously, wrongful convictions are bad, and the automatic inclination is to try to create mechanisms to reduce false positives. But there's also the cost of false negatives that looms in the background. Informants are clearly an important part of police investigations. Do you worry that these reforms might make things too difficult on the prosecution? and therefore trade too many of those false negatives in return for the benefits? It's a great question, and it is something I think about. I'm a former federal prosecutor, and I saw the value of using informants to pursue those who are most culpable. I do think it's a question of balance and calibration. Prosecutors should be open to approaches that are endeavoring to make informant testimony as reliable as it can be. So I don't think we should have a knee-jerk reaction that it's inherently going to be bad and it's going to create false acquittals. I do think that we should look carefully at the procedures that are being used and be humble about what we don't know and do what we can to make informant testimony as reliable as it can possibly be. Well, thanks, Jessica, for being on Excited Utterance. I look forward to seeing how reforms on informant testimony develop over time and to perhaps more empirical studies on how we might be able to best handle it. Thanks very much. Several themes emerge from Jessica's treatment of informant testimony and our ensuing discussion. First, as I mentioned in the podcast, her focus on early disclosures of information continues a trend, or as she suggests, a convergence in the evidence literature that explores evidentiary mechanisms beyond admissibility rules. Rather than simply railing against informant testimony and determining the conditions under which it should be excluded, Jessica suggests providing criminal defendants with more tools with which to attack it. Second, we saw a link between the psychological limitations of the jury and the use of judicial screening. Jessica expressed skepticism whether the psychological studies on informant testimony done so far sufficiently replicate real-world trials. 
If those studies are true, though, they create a real problem. If jurors basically ignore the incentives that informants are offered and further ignore expert testimony revealing the risks of informant testimony, then no amount of disclosure is going to help. The priming and framing that occur at trial are simply too powerful, and cross-examination will be too little too late. But into this dismal state of affairs, the judge can come to the rescue. By conducting a pretrial hearing in which the informant is considered separately, the judge may be in a better position to avoid these psychological biases. Coupled with the fact that the judge is a repeat player, these Daubert-like hearings may be the best option for combating false informant testimony. Finally, we touched on a fundamental tension in evidentiary reform. The innocence movement has revealed shocking weaknesses in many traditionally favored types of evidence. The understandable impulse is, of course, to regulate them and place additional barriers on their use. Yet all of this comes with costs. Frequently, reducing one type of error increases another. And when that happens, making those trade-offs becomes a tricky business. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Branstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.